First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. We've been studying again the books of Samuel this year, uh, which contains so much of the history of God's people, and we've already read about some big moments in our study of First and Second Samuel, some really important moments. Uh, but I think that among uh, Bible teachers, there really isn't even a debate about what I'm going to say next. And that is that the chapter that we're going to read today, Second Samuel 7, is the most important chapter in all of First and Second Samuel. In fact, I would say that 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. And that's because that God makes a promise here in this chapter to King David that without exaggeration, we will still be talking about a billion years from now. Whether this is your first time to hear these words or your 50th time, to hear these words. Let's read it. Let's ask God to change us by these words today. 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day. But I have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about, with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them. And they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house." When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Verse 18. 
Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake, and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations, and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel. Let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you <coughs> to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let's pray. Father, we are aware today that we are indeed walking on sacred ground as we read these words that you spoke so long ago. Father, I am mindful today of my total inability to communicate the magnitude of these truths. Pray, Father, that you in these moments would speak as only your Holy Spirit can. You would help us to grasp these truths. Father, you would cause us to overflow with praise and worship for who you are, for what you have done, and for what you promised to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About uh, 15 years ago, when I was in uh, seminary, I was called uh, by a wonderful church in Raleigh to become their youth pastor. And, and I was told that there was this event, it was going to be a pool party that was going to be at uh, one of the parents' houses uh, where I was going to go and I was going to have a chance to meet all the kids that were in uh, the student ministry. And so uh, they gave me the address. And so, uh, you know, when they said it's going to be at a house, I had a certain thing in my mind. I was going to drive up to this house and there's going to be a pool in the backyard. And, and so I put in the, uh, uh, the coordinates there and, and, and followed the directions and drove up to this address. And as I was driving in past the gate, uh, I saw a house there on the side that was a pretty nice house. And I thought maybe that was it. I found out later that was the, the gardener's home on the residence. 
And then as I continued to wind around the drive, I came into this just wide open field with this immaculately cut lawn that looked as though it were a golf course. I later found out it was a private golf course at one time between uh, these uh, homes. And as I looked also beyond that immaculately cut lawn, I saw uh, mansions on that lawn, one after another. Each one was bigger than the next. I found out later that on that lawn a few years prior to that, uh, they had had a fundraiser for President George W. Bush uh, where there was a big tent on their property and people could pay hundreds of dollars to sit under the tent and to meet the president. After seeing this place, I was not surprised at all that that had occurred there. And so I drove up to this party, and and again, the bottom line is, uh, when I heard that this party was going to be at a house, I had one thing in mind. But apparently they had something totally different in mind. That's kind of like what you're reading here in 2 Samuel 7. David has one definition of a house in mind, but God is thinking about something entirely different and something far bigger and grander. David wants to build God a literal house, a, a temple, but God says he's going to build David a different kind of house a dynasty, a kingdom that would go on forever and ever. There are two main sections in this chapter, verses 1 through 17 and verses 18 through 29. And in these two sections, I believe that there are two actions that we need to take today and in the days to come. And so first off, just like David did for the very first time here, we need to just hear the promises. We need to hear these promises, and we need to hear them because even though these promises are ancient, even though they were spoken by God to a man who lived 3,000 years ago, these promises can be our promises too. If we would hear them, and if we would believe in the one to whom they ultimately point. Now the story begins by telling us that David was in a good place in his reign as king. Verse 1 says God had given him rest from his enemies all around. And so David is sitting in his house with God's prophet Nathan one night, maybe after dinner, and they're having a conversation. And perhaps Nathan asked uh, David how he was doing, and he said, great, everything is great. Uh, God has been so good. God has been blessing every part of my kingdom. But Nathan, there's just one thing that is bothering me. And in verse 2, he tells us what that one thing is. He says to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside of tent curtains. And so David just doesn't think it is right uh, that here he is sitting in this beautiful house that has been built for him and the ark of God that we talked about last week that represented the very presence of God among his people was sitting there in a makeshift tent. And it's almost as if David is embarrassed by this situation. He doesn't think it's right. The implication is, by the way, that he wants to do something about it. He wants to build a house. He wants to build a temple uh, to house the ark of the covenant. And Nathan just kind of off the cuff uh, says, you know, yeah, David, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down, and, and, and your heart is, is in the right place, and, and, and so, uh, you know, just go for it. Just get her done. And, and by the way, God is 
with you. Of course, God was with David in a general sense, but God wasn't with David in this particular plan. In fact, God is about to put the brakes on it. Because that very night, the word of the Lord comes to his prophet Nathan, and basically verse 5, all the way down to verse 16, is what God says to Nathan. And then in verse 17, we find out that Nathan said all of that to David. And so verses 5 through 16 is God's message for David that he speaks to him through the mouthpiece of his prophet Nathan. And so what does God say? Well, for starters, God says, no, David, you're not going to build me a temple, a house. And then this is just an aside here, but what this does show us is that what Nathan had told David the day before when he said, just do it, was wrong. That that wasn't from God. It was Nathan's wisdom, but it wasn't God's wisdom. And that should really teach all of us that no matter how godly a person may be, we can all make a wrong decision when we lean on our own understanding instead of the Lord. That we all need the wisdom that can only come from God. We need to understand that we lack that wisdom. And as it says in James chapter 1, we need to ask God for his wisdom and he will grant it to us liberally and without reproach. And so again, God puts the brakes on this temple building project and he gives several reasons for why he's not going to allow David to do this. I think there's a little bit of, of humor and even some playfulness here in the way that God uh, speaks to David. Because God is the God of heaven and earth. And he's kind of having a little fun with David and saying, David, I really don't need a little house to live in. I'm not really worried about my accommodations, like I might have to spend the night in the Motel 6 or something. I'm doing okay, and I've got all of the universe at my command. And by the way, all the cedar that you would use to build me a house is already in all the creation that I have already made. I don't really need this. And then he says, and by the way, as you look back over the history of, uh, of my people, he says, I have never uh, just stayed in one place. In fact, I've moved about with the people of God wherever they've gone. Aren't you glad that our God is a God who moves with us? He travels with us through life. We travel through all the topsy-turvy wanderings of the people of God during all those days in the wilderness and the Ark of the Covenant was housed during all of that time in a movable tent. It was never in one fixed location. And then he also says, David, have I ever asked anybody else to do this? Have I ever asked anybody else, any of my other leaders before you, and said, why haven't you built a tent for me? I haven't been out campaigning for this. I haven't been out lobbying for this. And I think the implication there is, if I really did need something, David, do you honestly think that I would come and ask you? God is not needy or dependent upon us. God is the one who gives to us everything that we need, not the other way around. He wanted David to understand that. Now, God does say down in verse 13 that he will allow David's son Solomon to build him a house, to build him a temple, but he would not allow David to do it. So really, this actually wasn't a no. It was more like a not yet. It's not the right time. We find out over in 1 Chronicles 22 that one of the reasons God doesn't allow David to build his temple is that he was a man of war, that he had shed much blood, and that is true. 
But I want you to notice that in this passage, in 2 Samuel 7, here the word of God does not bring that up. Here, the author of Samuel wants to emphasize something else for us, namely that while David wanted to do something big for God, that our future would not be shaped by something that David wanted to do for God. It would be shaped by something that God was going to do for David. And you can see that there at the end of verse 11 when God says, Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. But God says, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And you're thinking, well, David already had a house. Again, God has in mind a different kind of house, a, a dynasty that will last forever. And he makes that even more clear down in verse 16 when he said, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Wow. So God says, David, your descendants are going to reign over my kingdom forever. Now, forever is a long time, isn't it? Forever includes right now. Forever means that right now there is a son of David who is ruling over us, who has the, the right and the authority to order our lives. This is an incredible promise that God was making to David here, way bigger than David had in mind. And so as we eavesdrop on what God is saying to David, again, we need to hear these promises. And the first promise we need to hear is the promise of a forever king, a forever king. And we'll come back to that promise in a moment because it is so crucial. But just for a moment, I want us to camp out again on what God says to David here when he says to him, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. As one person put it, it's almost as if God flipped the script on David. Perhaps God wants to flip the script on some of us here today. Maybe he wants to change the way that fundamentally we've been thinking about God, thinking about how we can even know God and have a relationship with him, because very often we think the same way that David was thinking. We think that we need to do this and we need to do that. And if we do these things, then God will be pleased with us and then God will bless us. That thinking is not new. In fact, even the Canaanite kings that lived in the vicinity of David, they thought like that. They thought if, if they would build temples for their false gods, that their gods would be happy with them and would bless them with a long reign. But God wanted David to know and he wants us to know that that is not how it works with the one true God of heaven and earth. We've been hearing a lot on the news lately about this phrase quid pro quo. Well, God does not bless us according to a quid pro quo. Right? It is not, well, if you do this, then God will do that. No, the truth is, and I want you to see this, that it's not about what we want to do for God. It's about what God has done and will do for us. If there's anybody in this room that hasn't yet put your faith and your trust in Jesus, that is all that you must do in order to be saved, to trust in him. The Bible could not be more clear 
that salvation is not something that we earn by doing good works for God. Salvation is something that God has already earned for us through our Savior, through Jesus and his death on the cross. Friend, it's not about what you can do for God. It's about what God has already done for you. Even for those of us in this room who know Christ as our Savior, we can still slip into this kind of thinking, can't we? Where we think, okay, well, well now I'm a Christian. I know I've been saved by grace, but, but now uh, it, it's about building temples for God. Now it's about doing these things for God that that, that he might be pleased with me. And yes, God has created us, Ephesians 2.10 says, for good works. He has prepared them for us beforehand that we should walk in them. And yet whatever we want to do for God pales in comparison to what he's already done and what he will do for us. David wanted to build God a house of cedar God wanted to build David a house that would lead to Jesus Christ. David wanted to build God a house that was going to break down and decay over time. God promised to build David a house that would last forever and ever. Friend, whatever plans you might have, whatever aspirations you might have, God has something far bigger in mind. If we would trust him and trust in his promises. Here's what 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 9 says, I has not written nor ear heard, nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. After the Lord tells David in verse 11 that he's going to build him a forever dynasty with a forever king, in verse 12 he starts to tell him how that's going to take place. Verse 12 he says, When your days, David, are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Underline that word seed in verse 12 in your Bibles because that is such an important word. Well, who is this seed? Well, in one sense, collectively, it refers to all of the descendants of David who would ever occupy his throne to shepherd the people of God. They are all his seed. In another sense, of course, this seed is singular. It refers to David's immediate heir to King Solomon. Solomon, as great as a king as he was, though, would not reign forever. He could not reign forever. And so ultimately, who is this seed who is going to reign forever? Well, for the sake of time, we won't turn there, but way back in your Bibles, in the third chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise that one day the seed of a woman was going to come and that Satan was going to reach up for his heel and strike his heel, but that this seed of a woman would come and would crush the head of the snake. And ever since Genesis 3, we've been waiting for this seed of a woman to come, this one who would crush the head of Satan. When we come to Genesis chapter 12, we find out a little bit more information about this coming seed, this coming Savior, because God singles out this one man named Abraham out of all the people on the earth. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a great family out of you. And through you, every family on the face of the earth is going to be blessed. And so right there, we know something about this coming seed. We know that this seed 
is going to be a descendant of Abraham. Well, fast forward to 2 Samuel 7. Now we know even more. Now we know that not only is this coming seed going to be a Jewish person, an Israelite descended from Abraham, but now we know that they're going to come from David's family. When that seed finally comes, he is born in a manger in the city of David, the same city that David was born in, the town of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ our Lord. And only in Jesus, the final seed of David, would there be someone who could reign on David's throne forever and ever and ever. Verse 14 speaks of the relationship that God would have with this son of David. If you look at that with me, he says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now again, this promise is fulfilled in one sense with King Solomon's reign. God is saying that he would have a special father and son relationship with King Solomon, which of course he did. But in a much, much more significant sense, the greater son of David was also, of course, the eternal son of God. Jesus has been calling God his father forever and ever before the world and time began. And so how beautiful is it here to to hear God speaking of his son, saying, I will be his father and he will be my son. Of course, in one sense, the second half of verse 14 only applies to Solomon. When it says, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Now, Jesus, of course, never sinned and never needed to be disciplined in the way that Solomon did or any of Solomon's descendants did. And yet, even though Jesus never sinned, he was disciplined. He was chastened, not for his own sin, but for ours. Isaiah 53 says that all of our sin was laid on his shoulders, that he was bruised for our iniquities. And so again, this first great promise that God made to David was the promise of a forever king. We need to hear it. We also need to hear in this text the promise of a forever kingdom. A forever kingdom. You see, it's clear in the words that God gives to David here, these words that we call the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David, that this forever king who would come from David's family would rule and reign over a kingdom that would last forever and ever. I said earlier that the word house is one of the key words in this passage. And you can see that it's used in a couple of different senses there in verse 13. Look at that again. It says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we see here in one sense that God is speaking of King Solomon. The first fulfillment would come when King Solomon, David's son, would build a literal house, a temple for God, the same temple that David wanted to build and was told not to. But speaking of the future son of David, the final son of David, the Lord Jesus, God is saying that in a far greater sense, he would build a house for God. He would establish a kingdom under him. Jesus made it possible through what he did on the cross for a kingdom of people like you and me to be saved. People from every background. 
In Revelation, we read that God will save people from every tribe and every tongue and every people on the planet, that one day we will all gather around the throne and praise our forever king. This is the house that he is building. Jesus is building this house even now, and by faith in him, you and I can be a part of that house. We can be a part of that kingdom. Again, in verse 13, he says this kingdom would last forever. In verse 16, he says it again. Your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, I'm sure that there were those who questioned the truthfulness of this promise. Because if you know much about Old Testament history, you know that there were many times after King David's lifetime where it really didn't seem like his kingdom was going on forever. At this point, David is ruling and reigning over a united kingdom, but remember, that didn't even last two more generations, right? David's grandson, Rehoboam, would royally screw that one up, right? And the kingdom would be divided, and ten of the tribes, the northern tribes, would follow a different line of kings, whereas David's house and David's lineage would rule over the southern tribe of Judah, And even though the southern tribe of Judah lasted a little bit longer than the northern tribes did, they did not last forever because the last Davidic king, a man named Zedekiah, was ruling when the Babylonians came in and took the Israelites away into captivity. Now eventually, again, if you know your Old Testament, you know eventually God returned them. They came back after that time of exile into the promised land again. But there was not a Davidic king ruling and reigning over them like there had been before. And then we come to this gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's 400 years of silence where it appears that this promise is lost, that this promise has been forgotten, that God is not speaking. And so what about this promise, this incredible promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 about a forever king and and a forever kingdom where was that promise how could that promise be true when it seemed like it had already ended and so for critics and for scoffers there was plenty of reasons to question this promise until one night again in that little stable outside of Bethlehem a baby boy began to cry and nine months before that night here's what God sent the angel Gabriel to say to his mother, look at these words, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest, listen to this, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You know, if I had to pick one word to describe this promise that God gave to David in 2 Samuel 7, it would be the word unstoppable. Because this promise of a forever king and a forever kingdom was unstoppable. Think about it, nothing could stop it. Even sin could not stop it. Neither David's sin, that we're going to see very clearly when we come to chapter 11, Neither Solomon's sin after him or the sin of any of the descendants of David that came after that. No, none of that sin could stop God's promise. So sin could not stop it, but also death could not stop it. Verse 12 tells us that David, as great as he was, would one day die and rest with his 
fathers. Solomon, as great a king as he was, would also die and rest with his fathers. And so would every king in David's line after him until one day a king would come who would overcome death and the grave and rise again. And so God's promise marches on in spite of death. Sin could not stop it. Death could not stop it. And time could not stop it either. Again, no matter how many centuries went by, God's promise remained intact. And in the fullness of time, at just the right time, God brought forth his son. Friend, this is a great, great promise of a forever king, of a forever kingdom. And we can be a part of that kingdom through faith in David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This promise can be our promise if we come to know him in a personal way. That's why the first thing that we need to do is we need to hear the promises. But secondly, just like David did in verses 18 through 29, we need to praise the promiser. We need to hear the promises, and then we need to praise the one who promised. I'm sure that all of us have had this experience of being stopped at, at a red light. And maybe you're not the front car. Maybe there's a car in front of you, and there's a bunch of cars then you know, on behind you. And the light turns green, but the car that is in front of you does nothing for like a long time. And I mean, if there is a greater test of your Christianity than that, I'm not really sure what it is. Right? And I'm sure that none of you in this room have ever laid on the horn or banged your steering wheel in anger because you're far too godly for that. So I'm sure you waited the appropriate amount of time, and then you gave just a, a slight, just a, little, just a little nudge on the horn, just, just enough to let them know I'm not angry, but the light is green. And the reason why you do that is so you can make it through the light and also for the goodness of all the people behind you, right? So they can make it through the green light as well because a green light means that you're supposed to move. You, you can't not be moved by a green light. Well, in the same way, when the Lord has given us amazing promises like these, we can't not be moved. These promises should move us, and they should move us to praise. And they move David to praise. In verse 18, he goes and he sits down in the presence of the Lord in the tent near where the Ark of the Covenant was. And, and, and he just begins to reflect on all that God has done for him and all that God has promised him. And gratitude just begins to well up in his heart and overflows in this prayer of praise that he utters for the rest of this chapter David starts out in verse 18 by saying, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me this far? You see, the first thing that David praised God for is what we need to praise God for also. We need to praise him for past grace. For past grace. Before we even start to praise him for what he said about our future, we need to praise him for what he has already done. And just as David did here, we need to realize that we do not deserve any of it. Who am I? Who is my house that you would do all of this for me, that you would bring me this far? And think about how far God has brought David. He's brought David through an awful lot, hasn't he? And we've been reading about it for the last 21 chapters. He's brought David through lions and bears. He's brought David through nine-foot-tall giants. He's brought David through Philistine armies. 
He's brought David through a crazy king who's chasing him around everywhere, trying to kill him and throwing spears at his head. He has preserved David when he was in enemy territory. He has preserved David, though a rival king stepped up to take his throne. He has preserved him time and time again. And he fulfilled the promise that he gave to David way back in the fields outside of Bethlehem, that he would raise him up to be the next king of God's people. And so he praises God. He says, God, you are the one who has brought me this far. Friend, think about all that God has done for you. Think about how far God has brought you if you know the Lord Jesus. Think about how he saved you, how he redeemed you. Think about where you were when God's grace found you and how he took your feet out of the quicksand that you were sinking into because of your sin and like me, because of my sin and how he lifted us out and he set our feet on a solid rock. Praise God for his past grace in your life that has brought you to this point. And praise God for his present grace that you're receiving right now because he's the one sustaining you every single moment. But, but don't stop there. Don't stop after praising him for past grace and for present grace. Do what David does here because the light is still green. We need to go on. We need to praise God also for future grace as well. In verse 19, he says, And yet, God, all of this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. David understands that everything God had done for him up to that point, it was almost like God looked at that as a little thing compared to this great thing that now God had promised to do for David, something that would go on forever. I'm not sure if David understood the full ramifications of everything that God promised him, but I know he heard that word forever a couple of times. Because he says that word five times back to God in his prayer. He understood that this promise that God had made him was a promise that would have no expiration date. And then at the end of verse 19 is a little phrase there that in the Hebrew is very difficult to interpret. Interpreters have rendered it a, a number of different ways. In the New King James Version, it, it says, Is this the manner of men, O Lord God? But I really believe that this is more of a statement than a question. Literally, the text reads, this is the Torah. This is the law of mankind. You could even translate that. This is man's destiny. I think that David understood that in some miraculous way, God's promise to all of mankind that he made to Abraham years and years before that was now being intertwined with David's own family so that the hope for mankind was now part and parcel with the family and the lineage of David. What a promise. And he praises God for that. He's overwhelmed by that. In fact, in verse 20, he's, he's almost left speechless. He says, God, what more can I say? I'm, I'm dumbfounded by everything that you've done. And then he allows the greatness of that promise to fuel his praise of God. And he speaks about how great God is in verse 22. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, nor, there, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we've heard with our ears. David says that God is incomparable, and he is. And in verses 23 and 24, he begins to speak about the people of God, the nation of Israel, how unique that they were and are. And ultimately, the promise that God made to David wasn't just about David, it was about God's People. He speaks about how unique they were because God redeemed them out of bondage in Egypt. God rescued them. 
so that they would be a unique people for his own praise. And the New Testament says the same thing about the church, that we are a unique people on the face of the earth because God has redeemed us from the bondage to sin, that he has set us free. He has not only redeemed us from something, he has redeemed us to something. He has redeemed us for his glory and for his purposes on the earth. And that is why the church is unique. And, and yet ultimately, that, that should, as we think about that uniqueness of the church, it really should just fuel, it should add fire to, to fuel our praise of the unique God, the one and only God who has done all of this for us. And then you look at the last few verses there, verses 25 to 29, and it's kind of interesting because really what David does there in those final verses, he just essentially prays God's promises right back to him. Now, he, he prays a few other things. He prays that God's name would be magnified, that God would be glorified, but, but mainly in these verses, he's saying, God, the things that you have promised me, I'm asking that you would do them. You look in verse 25, it's very clear that he says, Now, O Lord God, the word which you've spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. Davis gives us a great model for the way that we need to pray. Like him, we need to pray God's promises back to him with faith. Pray God's promises back to him with faith. And in many ways, this is what prayer is all about. It's about praying the word of God back to God. How, how do you know if you're praying in accordance with his will? Well, if you're praying God's word back to him, then you know you are praying in accordance with the will of God. You can say, Lord, you said this, and I know, God, that you always do what you said. Now, those last two words are very important. Pray God's promises back to him with faith, with faith. You can't pray God's promises if you don't believe God's promises. You know, we, we were able to look back on David 3,000 years later and see at least some of the fulfillment of this promise. We know about Bethlehem. We know about the greater son of David who would be born. But remember, David knew none of that. At this point, all he had was this bare promise from God that one of his descendants would rule and reign forever, and yet David chose to believe the word of God. In verse 28, he said, And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. Friend, how about you? Do you believe the promises of God like that? Do you believe that God's promises are always true? Because there will be times when you will be tempted and I will be tempted to not believe the promises of God. Times in our everyday life as we walk through this world that we'll be tempted to not believe that God has really forgiven me. Times when we'll be tempted to not believe the promise that God can redeem me, that God can still use someone like me and someone like you, that there will be times where you're tempted to believe that God is not really, really with you that you're all alone. There'll be times where you're tempted to believe that there really is no hope for you, there really is no future for you, that the Lord Jesus isn't really coming back, that there really isn't a new heaven, that there really isn't a new earth, that this is all there is. There will be times when you sink down so low that you will be tempted to doubt it all. But in those times, can you say with David, Lord, I don't know about anything else, but I know that your word is true. I can say with the Apostle Paul, I know in whom I have believed, 
And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him until that day. I know that. And so much of the Christian life church is about what we choose to believe. Not when we're sitting down at a desk and taking a theology exam or we know what the right answer is supposed to be. But when we're actually walking through the realities of everyday life and in the moment-by-moment decisions that we make, will we choose to believe in the promises of God or not? I love how he ends that verse 28. He said, you, God, have promised this goodness to your servant. This goodness. You know, Thanksgiving is only 11 days away. And I'm excited about it already. And I'm excited about it because I know that some goodness is coming. I know that some turkey goodness is coming. I know that some gravy goodness is coming. I know that some deviled egg goodness is coming. I know that some pumpkin pie goodness is coming. Can I get an amen? I know that goodness is coming because my sweet mother and my sweet mother-in-law have promised me that it's coming. And you know what? I'm even more sure that this goodness is coming. Because my God has made a promise to David. And because I know the son of David, Jesus Christ, as my Savior, the promise that he made to him here is a promise that he has made to me. And I know that goodness is coming. Salvation goodness is coming. Return of Christ goodness is coming. No more sin to wrestle against goodness is coming. No more sorrow, goodness is coming. And a new heaven and a new earth, goodness is coming. It's all coming. Because God has made us a promise right here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the son of David will rule and reign on the throne forever and ever and ever. Again, we know this goodness is coming. But friend, I have a question for you. Do you know that this goodness is coming to you? It's not enough to know that this goodness is coming to the world in general, that this goodness is coming to the church. We have to know, is this goodness coming to me? And we can only know that, we can only claim this promise as our own if we have come to know the king that 2 Samuel 7 is talking about. You know, when that king came 900 years after David lived, and he started his earthly ministry, Mark records for us the first sermon he ever preached. And it was only one sentence long. Here's the sermon. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom, see that word? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here because the king was here. And then he said this, repent and believe in the gospel, the good news. If you want to know that all this goodness is coming to you, Jesus tells us right there in one sentence all that we need to do. There's two things he says we need to do to receive that gift, to come to know the king, to enter into his kingdom. We have to repent. We have to be willing to say, God, I don't want to live the way that I've lived anymore. I want to turn away from that, and I want to turn to you. I want you to be my Lord. I want to live for you from this day forward. And then secondly, we need to believe. Not just believe in our head, but believe in our heart and put all of our trust in Jesus Christ, And what he did for us. Because again, it's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. And so friend, have you ever done that? Have you ever repented and believed in the gospel and the good news that Jesus came, that he died, and that he rose again? It's through repenting and believing that we come to know the king, 
that we enter into his kingdom and that the promise of this goodness that we read about today can not just be David's promise, but it can be your promise. I want to ask you to stand right now and as we begin to sing this song, if you want to receive that promise, that grace that God wants to offer to you, I want to ask you right now to leave the seat where you're where you're sitting, people will let you out. Maybe you want to ask somebody to come, come with you. Say, will you go down there with me? I, I need to make that step today. I don't want to leave this room not knowing that I'm a child of the King. You can come right now, speak with me or one of the other pastors that you see here as we sing together. You come. 